If you would, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3. I'll actually begin reading in verse 13. I think it is especially important for this text to remember the context. Our main passage of focus will be verses 18 through the end of the chapter. Verse 22. Verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirit's in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. I'll start by saying this is a bit of an odd text, at least on the surface. And it is passages like this, or it is due to passages like this, and there are a few throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament, uh, that some preachers, pastors, pull back from a verse-by-verse approach to the Bible. We'll take a, uh, a greatest hits approach or topical messages just to avoid the burden on a Sunday morning, celebration Sunday no less, of digging down into what has been called by some to be the most difficult passage to interpret in the New Testament. So, I have many convictions that I want to make clear to you. If you're following along the notes, with the, note, the notes are important, uh, this Sunday especially, if, if you need help and structure in getting through something like this, this is a difficult text, and so here are some convictions that I want to lay on the table for you to understand some of my approach to any text, but especially one like this. Number one, in terms of convictions in interpreting the Bible, the Bible is not inexplicable. The Bible is not inexplicable, and we can safely assume that there is a plain meaning of any text. It may be difficult to to get down to what that plain meaning is. It's there to find, and it's not inexplicable. Difficulty to understand, this is the second conviction in interpreting the Bible, difficulty to understand does not imply that the explanation itself is odd. And further, we must not develop whole new theologies um, or concepts based on a less clear passage. It has to be validated somewhere else that is more clear. Scripture, thirdly, Scripture interprets Scripture. And any interpretation of a quote-unquote less clear text must, must, be supported in some way by other texts. Okay? So that's a major conviction. Scripture interprets Scripture. Anything that we would say one passage that's a little less clear, a little fuzzy around the edges, it has to be supported by somewhere else in the Scriptures. Number four, in terms of interpretation convictions, convictions in interpreting the Bible, context is king. 
Context is king. That's kind of a, a, a truism and interpretation, but it is very important for me. It should be for you. Context is king in any interpretation of any text, especially ones that are less clear. The immediate context and the broader context then are the guardrails to any interpretation. We can't go wide left or wide right in order to come to an understanding of a passage if it's out of bounds, so to speak, from the context of the letter or book, then we should reject that interpretation. We can't then justify interpretations that are deviant in the sense that they're, they're, it, it would be a massive changing of the subject or just completely no, no sense at all as to why the biblical author is saying that. Now I have some pastoral convictions to convey to you when we come to a passage, any passage in Scripture, but especially a passage like this. I want to ask you to avoid distractions. <laughs> this, uh, you hear me pray for this a lot, but in, in, a, in a sermon like this, don't fire up the Googles just yet, or do word searches, or even read notes in your study Bible. Okay, we, We've got to keep it on, on point. And get through this so that the whole picture of this text can be shared. Like we, this, this isn't a personal study time. This is to hear what the preacher is presenting and then it can be judged by Scripture afterwards. So try to eliminate distractions as we go through this. Further, another pastoral conviction is all Scripture is profitable. Meaning useful. It is useful for training for correction and rebuke. And this is true of texts that are less clear. There are true of less, it is true of less texts that are more difficult to interpret. This means that there is payoff, real, everyday payoff to understanding difficult texts. So, so that's some of the invitation, some of the hope, some of the confidence that we can have that if it is true, that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for the man of God, the woman of God, to be equipped for every good work, then that means that even understanding difficult texts will have real payoff in your life day to day. Sanctification, I, I forget where I was when, when I began to see this and understand this, but I think one of the ways that sanctification can be explained is your progressive ability to say, I love this passage about every single passage of scripture that that is a way that you can plot your growth in order to come to a passage even like this and say i love this i want this i want these truths i want to live in obedience to it even if you don't understand everything there is to say about it we should love god's words further we should not be embarrassed or shy away from texts like this that are difficult the bible is very very old and the cultural context and the stock of ideas that were popular and used back in the time when it was being, write, uh, being written is very different than ours. Uh, and then further, this is a pastoral conviction as well, one does not have to solve all the puzzles of a text to get at the heart of it. You don't have to answer every possible question about a passage in order to see and use it for your life to equip you for every good work. Further, obsession over strange angles or theories of interpretation indicates a heart not prone to obey. Some people seem to want the answer to a text to be out of bounds and weird and odd. And that is a problem. We should, we should reject that when we see it in our own hearts and when another interpreter comes and trying, trying to get us to buy into something that is way out of bounds and odd. That desire, that, that want of something esoteric and, and isolated and hard to get to, that, is, that should be rejected outright. Lastly, this is a pastoral conviction, the last one. While showing my work as a preacher is important, I don't want to address every possible theory or answer every question that one might have. So you'll probably, at the end of this message, have a lot of questions. I'm not going to try to answer all of them. I'm trying to make my case as to what I think this means and why Peter's saying it, and that will be it, essentially. There is a real danger in losing the forest for the trees when you preach. So I don't want to just get bogged down one commentator said there are 
about 180 different ways to answer some of the questions about this text. But we're not going to address them all. Most of them are deviant, but uh, there are a few options that an Orthodox person could understand. So, armed with these convictions about interpreting the Bible, armed with that pastoral and exegetical framework, we are set to ask the question. This is, I think, the most helpful question when it comes to addressing or interpreting a difficult text. Why does this text exist? Why is it there? How does it fit into the flow of the letter? Why did Peter write this? And, and I'm making the assumption, and I think it is a well-grounded assumption, that we can, for the most part, answer that question about any text in the Scripture. Why does 1 Peter 3, 18-22 exist? How does that section fit into Peter's overall purposes? And I think there are three reasons, three main reasons this text exists. Number one, it answers the why question raised by verse 15. Verse 15 says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter is then grounding his claim. That's, a, that's an amazing claim, that it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. He grounds that claim on the observation that this is what the Lord Jesus did. Christians are to emulate His example then. It's better to suffer for doing good, that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So He's showing us, in beginning in verse 18, that this is exactly the same road that Jesus walked. That's supported by the context of the the whole section leading up to this. And it is the rationale for verses 18 through 22. See, he begins 18 by saying, for Christ also suffered. So so this this is the proof, the, the support for the claim of verse 17. That's why this section exists. The idea of emulating Christ has been stated implicitly this whole time as we've been going through this section, but... Not many explicit reasons have been given. We've been told, like in chapter 2, verse 21, that we're supposed to follow in his footsteps, but it's not clear in that text, at least, as to why. Why should we follow in Jesus' footsteps? Why do we have to walk the same road? I thought he suffered under the wrath of God so we wouldn't have to. Yes, but that means that being joined with Jesus means that opposition from the world increases. And so your life, your lot, your ordained, called, summoned path may involve more suffering because you're a Christian. Why should we be, might I even say, excited and willing to walk the same road? Because this is exactly where Jesus walked. And look at how it resulted for him. Look at what came of it for him in his case. That's, that's why this passage exists. One of the reasons. Peter turns to answer that explicit question. Or why? To what end should we follow the example of Jesus in suffering this way? Verses 18 through 22 answer. Number two, it resolves the tension of injustice. Peter has been building a tension this, this entire time between the behavior of the just, the behavior of those who trust God, and the mistreatment from the world. So you're doing good, you're doing good, you're seeking to follow God's will, you're, you're being kind, you're being gentle, you're being respectful. And what we get from the world, from our opponents, from those who hate the gospel, from those who are opposed to Jesus, is mistreatment. He even says, do not return evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. So this is creating an even more staggering imbalance in the scales of justice as we respond to the mistreatment of the world with blessing. So that tension that's been building up, the resolve has been alluded to, that you may obtain a blessing. That tension is now resolved in verses 18 through 22. So this is the point. I I think this, this passage is talking about Christ's victory. This is one of the main things that he's addressing. His victory or his triumph. So... In resolving the tension of injustice, the truth of Christ's victory or Christus victor is the motivation for following his example, not the other way around. That we can look at Jesus 
and his triumph and his victory and his vindication by God. And that then gives us the theological, the emotional, the relational strength to follow his example. Because look at how it resulted for him. In short, the believer should follow in his footsteps, not even if, but especially when we are called to suffer for doing good, because doing so resulted in Jesus's full scale and total triumph and vindication. Thus, that will be the result for those who follow his example. This triumph, this vindication, contra God's enemies, contra the enemies of God, that is the backbone of verses 18 through 22. It's very important. Number three, the reason why this text is here is it completes the encouragement of solidarity. This entire letter, Peter has been trying to connect the experience of the believer with the experience of Jesus. The life you live is in many ways reenacting the life of Christ. That's, that's, that's part of the theological heart of First Peter. And we shouldn't be surprised, he, he goes on to say later, when, when they, when the fire, at the fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you, this is the exact same type of stuff that took place in Jesus' life. He did good, got treated badly for it. He honored God, things didn't work out for him. But he was vindicated. So all this time, Peter has been saying, you're, you're right there with Jesus. You're following his example and all of these things. And now, what, what of our solidarity with him in his vindication? This text, I think, strongly, strongly encourages Peter's hearers to remember that as Christ was vindicated, so will his followers be. His triumph is a preview of ours. His resurrection is a preview of ours. God declaring him to be in the right and giving him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father is a preview of God saying, well done. And us, according to Scripture, reigning with him. So the life of Jesus isn't just vicarious in the sense that it's in our place. It's also preview that this is the same path we get to walk. So Peter needs to state it explicitly. He's alluded to our hope resulting in praise and glory and honor in chapter one. So that's that's an allusion to what's going to happen. But in the same way that Christ was mistreated and put to death, and yet emerged from the grave with resounding victory, so shall the believer be victorious, even if we are put to death. And we experience this triumph now through our hope. That's the point. It's interesting to note the participles of this, this passage. We'll get to this at the end. Um, but there are four participles that, that show that this passage is following the pattern of Jesus and trying to connect the experience of the believer to that. So he's, he is put to death. He is made alive. He goes to proclaim. And then he goes to heaven. Those are, that's the unity of the passage, at least if you're looking at it in the original language. Participle, 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 participle. Being made alive. Being put to death. Being made alive. Going to proclaim. Going into heaven. So we'll see how that connects to our experience as well. So, in summary... 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22 does three things. Number one, it shows why. It shows us why we should follow the example of Jesus, particularly when it comes to suffering for doing good. Number three, it resolves the tension of injustice, the unjust treatment of the righteous by considering the triumph and vindication of Christ. And three, it shows us that if we are with Christ, following in His footsteps, we can trust that our end will be the same. So, this text does this. It does these three things in the following way. Number one, Christ's suffering brings us to God. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Not only did Christ suffer for doing good, He was suffering for unrighteous persons in order to save them. 
So this connects the theme of these verses back to the beginning of the letter, especially all the way back to chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where we're supposed to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that seeing our good deeds, right, so that, so that even if we're reviled for the sake of Jesus, that they would glorify God on the day of visitation. So a strong allusion to the idea that our behavior is meant to aim at the salvation of the watching world. So Jesus, in his endurance of suffering for doing good, suffering for unrighteous person, he saves people. This is a key statement on propitiation in the New Testament. What I mean by propitiation is that Christ's death wasn't just an example for us. It wasn't just him dying a a martyr's death to show us what happens when we follow God. He died in our place. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He doesn't say by the hands of the unrighteous, though that would be true. Right? The evil men that in God's providence were gathered together in the city to carry out against Jesus all that he had predestined to take place. That's true. He was put to death by unrighteous people. But, but the truth of this passage is that he dies for unrighteous people. There's an interposition happening. He dies instead of us. He, he bears the wrath of God against our sin instead of us. That He might bring us to God. So the idea is that in our unrighteousness, we are unable to get to God. Right? Because that's the purpose statement in the passage. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. So so without Him dying in this way, in our place, for our sins, there is no getting to God. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. That's the problem every person who has ever drawn breath, except the Lord Jesus, has. That your sin, your unrighteousness, my unrighteousness, makes us disqualified to come to God. And Jesus dies. Laying down His righteous life in our place for our sins so that He may bring us to God. See, the Gospel is instrumental. It's not the point. we got to get this. The gospel is the basis of the praise and glory that Jesus is to receive. Worthy are you to receive praise and glory and honor for you have ransomed a people from all nations. But the point is to get us to a place where we can worship God and render to Him in Christ all the glory due His name. And Christ's death brings us to God. We need to prioritize this in our minds even as we come to a difficult text that the main point, the main point is for us to enter the story. That that we are part of this. And and the appeal to you, no matter where you are in your walk with the Lord, is to believe. Believe for the first time or believe even more that this is in fact what God is doing. That through trusting in His death for you, we are now qualified to come to God. And He's the one who's bringing us to God. It's not like... He gives us a badge of certification and then we find our way there. Jesus is the one who who ushers us into God's presence on the basis of his death in our place. His suffering for doing good accomplished something. And this is a reason for rejoicing. Understand this. This is showing us the purpose. We can trust that God is at work to accomplish not only His glory in some mystical, philosophical way back there that we don't ever talk about or understand, some mysterious glorifying of Him, but the way that He is glorifying Himself, even in our suffering, is to accomplish His work of salvation because that's what He did in Christ's suffering. This is that solidarity theme that Peter has been underscoring, that, that our trials, even the mistreatment that we get because we do the right thing, is part of God plan to save persons. Even if we must suffer evil and sorrow for doing good, we can know that nothing that the Father leads us through is anything that He did not cause His Son to walk through before us. He's already gone there. He is the forerunner. We follow in His 
steps. So be encouraged, believer. You, as you walk that road that feels lonely, that feels fraught with disaster and opposition from the world as we try to hold high the banner of the cross and the glory of Jesus and the opposition of the world goes stronger as the both grow up together in the parable of the field, that this is exactly what Jesus experienced. Those same emotions of crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the experience of the believer that that while on the outside it looks like God is abandoning us, it is yet His purpose to save people through these trials. And here's the point. The Lord is far more interested in salvation than He is in our temporal comforts. A lot more than we are. He cares far more about sparing people from his wrath than he does ensuring that we have a comfortable life. So he will intentionally cause us to walk the same path as Jesus so that simultaneously he saves others and our hearts are nourished through that sense of union with him that we have. Christ's suffering brings us to God. His suffering, though, resulted in triumph. Through resurrection. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This suffering for righteousness did not result in his utter demise. But rather, because he suffered, even unto death, he was raised to a more glorious and powerful existence. I wish that we could just bask in the glory of the resurrection more often. It is a shame that there there are many hymns that we sing that almost feel out of place because it's not Easter. It's a cultural thing. I don't don't know even how to address it in in my capacity as a pastor, but, but the hope that is pictured and portrayed before our eyes in the resurrection and the fact that Christ, having been put to death, After God brought His wrath down on Him in our place, He was raised victoriously over the grave. That is the foundation of our hope. Being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. There's a rhythmic quality to these statements. Uh, One of my favorite authors uh, defined a word, uh, eucatastrophe. A good disaster. He he called it the sudden happy turn in a story. That pierces you with joy. That brings tears. And this is what he says about the resurrection. He uses that word eucatastrophe. The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. The resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of the Incarnation. The story begins and ends in joy. There is no tale ever told that men would rather find was true. And none which so many skeptical men have, been, have accepted as true on its own merits. To reject it leads either to sadness or to wrath. The resurrection was the greatest eucatastrophe possible and produces that essential emotion, Christian joy, which produces tears because it is qualitatively so like sorrow. Because it comes from those places where joy and sorrow are at one, reconciled and selflessness and selfishness and altruism are lost in love. There is so much strength available to you, brothers and sisters, in just reflecting on the significance of the resurrections that though put to death in the flesh, Christ was made alive in the Spirit. And and you see, if you can see that you've been matched with Jesus in His foot, you're following Him in your footsteps, that this will happen to you as well. This is why I ask that we sing this song, obscure to many of us. Jesus lives and so shall I. If you get that God has joined you together, that His fate is now your fate, that because Jesus was victorious and vindicated over the grave, so shall you be. Then he says, in the Spirit. Uh, There's some debate if this should be translated 
uh, in the Spirit, lowercase, as the ESV renders it here, or by, or in the Spirit, capitalized, the, the third person of the Trinity, as it is in the NIV, KJV, New, New King James Version. Either way, we know that it is the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. This is what Paul says in Romans 8. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So we know that the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the, the agent of resurrection either way. But I think Peter is saying something a little bit different. He's not talking about the instrument of the resurrection, because if that were the case, then the flesh would be the instrument of his death. There's a pairing here, being put to death in the flesh, being made alive in the spirit. What it means, then, is a higher type of life pertaining to his resurrection body. And this is the hope of believers as well. I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians 15, I'll start reading in verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man living being and the last Adam, speaking of Christ, became a life giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, man of the dust. The second man is from heaven. So also are those who are of heaven, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust. So shall also we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment. In a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. And the dead shall be raised. Imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal and the mortal puts on the immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. This is all called a victory. It's not just a metamorphosis. It's not just a being raised in some general sense. It's a victory. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What Peter is saying then about Jesus is that even though he died, might we even say because he died in this way, being put to death in the flesh, the righteous for the unrighteous. Because he died in that way, He now lives in a new way that is characterized by power, immortality, and glory. This this is the consistent account of the gospel narratives. That Jesus in his resurrected state possessed a power, an ability, a, a glory that his body previous to his life, death, burial, and resurrection did not have. And Paul is saying that that is your destiny. As we share in Christ's sufferings, so shall we share in His victory and His vindication. We will be made alive in the Spirit in this new way. By the Spirit, of course, but this is speaking of not just... I hope you're not looking forward to having this same body. I'm getting older. I know some of you are getting older than me. 
But I'm 34 and I have gray in my beard already. And things feel like they're just breaking down more faster than they were. Takes me more days to recover from a day of working outside. So the body that you're to receive is a, as it's been called, a resurrection body. It is a, might we use the terminology of, of Paul, a spiritual body, a powerful body, a glorious body. That, that's the hope. And we see it happen in the life of Jesus. And so we can be confident that that will be ours as well. This is, I think this makes a strong allusion for the purposes of 1 Peter back to chapter 1. If you'll turn there, 1 Peter 1. He says, starting in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary... Right? That, that pairs it with if it should be God, God's will in verse 17. You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This, this is a theme he's introduced here and now he's saying explicitly this, this same pattern of going down into death being raised by the power of God to a new life in the Spirit is the praise and glory and honor that we are to have. So, this is what Jesus has done. This is the road we walk. This is the hope we have. In the, the reason I read verses 13 through 17 is because of that word hope. Be, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. But he leaves it undefined. And I think verses 18 through 22 tell us what the hope is, that you will follow Jesus in his victory and vindication. It's not just hope generally, crossing of the fingers. Like I've said this before, when you type in hope, if you have an Apple device, the emoji suggested is a crossing of the fingers. That is not Christian Hope, just just hoping on a prayer that it'll work out one day, that God will bring it to pass. Your hope, believer, is that God will raise you from the dust. Jesus is your hope and trust. Christ, this is the third phase. Now we're finally getting to the difficult, quote unquote, passage. Christ, having been raised, proclaims his triumph over the enemies of God. Taking this verse, and and this is—I'll just read it again. In which, meaning in this spiritual body, in this resurrected state, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. And if you've got the the notes, I've given you a paraphrase of it. We'll get to that in a minute. But just before we get to that, what a passage, Uh, Luther said this, who was usually dogmatic and was sure about everything he thought, you know, pounding the table with his preferred translation of certain things. This is what he said about this passage. This is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. So that's Luther. Let's see if we can make some more progress. Uh, There are a few questions in and around this. Where did Christ go? When did he go? To whom did he speak? And what did he say? And so in this paraphrase that I've given you in your notes, I'm going to read it for you. So if you don't have it, don't worry. This is how I take and answer those questions. In his resurrected state, that's what I think the in the spirit means, Christ proclaimed specifically his victory to spirits who had been sentenced and bound in prison. I get that word from 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Because they persisted in disobedience in spite of God's patience in the pre-flood world. So to answer the question, where did Christ go? He went to the prison. We, we, we typically think of hell as like down in the middle of the earth and you know this kind of Greek cosmology. But hell is God's prison. Prepared for Satan and his angels. Satan is not the Lord of heaven, uh, of hell. Jesus is. He's Lord of all. So Jesus, this is what I answer, Jesus goes to the prison. 
He went after he was raised from the dead, not in between his death and resurrection, as as the Catholic uh, interpretation of this says. He went after his resurrection at some point. To whom did he speak? He spoke to fallen angels. This word spirits here is almost never used to speak about souls of dead people. Almost always it's referring to evil spirits and, and perhaps righteous spirits. And what did he say? He proclaims. that it, it doesn't say. It just says he preached or proclaimed. He heralded to these spirits in prison. So we have to answer, what is he proclaiming? And the fact that Peter doesn't tell us precisely means that we need to derive what he's preaching, what he's proclaiming from the context. And I think this victory over death, this vindication by God after he was shamefully treated and put in the ground is precisely what he's proclaiming. One commentator says that just his presence alone as the glorified risen Messiah is itself the proclamation. So I'll read that paraphrase again. In his resurrected state, meaning alive in the spirit, Christ proclaimed his victory to spirits who had been sentenced to and bound in prison because they persisted in disobedience in spite of God's patience in the pre-flood world. That prison is is alluded to in Peter's second letter. We won't read it for the sake of time, but it's mentioned in chapter 2, verses 4, 5, and, and the same themes are at play. How God is preserving His righteous ones Even in view of the coming judgment, all of these themes are at play in that same text. The only addition is this idea of preaching or heralding or proclaiming. So, that's what I think it means. Let's back up and just ask, why does this need to be said? How is this encouraging to Peter's first readers? How is it encouraging to us? Why does it need to be said? And to answer that question, we can ask, answer a few other questions. Is there an Old Testament precedent of someone proclaiming victory contra the enemies of God? Well, Peter uses a word here for proclaim or preach that is different from the words he uses for preach and proclaim in all the rest of his letter. He uses the generic one, if, if we may say. The other ones are preaching the gospel. Euangelion, right? The verb form of preaching the gospel. In every other case, this one is just curios, the, the generic proclaim or herald. It is used in key moments in Israel's history, if, you, if you're reading from the Greek Old Testament, when leaders or servants of God's people are vindicated or proclaimed as being in charge. This is the same word used of Joseph when Pharaoh puts him in the chariot and goes around the the nation and make a proclamation about him. It's the same word. And it's the same word used with Mordecai. Right, If the whole situation with Naaman trying to put him to death and what Naaman has to do is, is to walk around and proclaim, thus will be done to the one that the king favors. And it's the same word used about Daniel after he is vindicated versus the satraps and all the the bureaucracy in the background in Babylon. Make a proclamation about Daniel. So there in each case, this word is used, not not in every case, but when when there all the players are in place, it is a proclamation being made about someone who's been in the service of God, whose position has been in question Who's being raised to a more victorious, more powerful state. There's also this idea of the taunt. The taunt against God's people being turned on the heads of the enemies of God. You see this all throughout the Psalms. We read it today. They say, where is your God? There's a question of those who oppose God. And you've got to understand, this is the setting of the people who were reading at first. The question is, are they making the right decision? Is it right for them to trust in God? I'll just give you one example. I had three here. This is from Psalm 119, 40 and 41 and 42. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I shall have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. This is what the people were saying on the cross to Jesus. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him, for surely he delights in him. 
So in a way, this preaching is an answer to the taunt. Might might the flavor even carry something like what, what the enemy was saying to our Lord in the wilderness? If you're really the Son of God, and he essentially let the jury stay out, let that question be unanswered until he goes in his resurrected state and shows himself to these spirits in prison. Yes, in fact, I am the Son of God. Is there a New Testament precedent for this idea of a proclamation against the enemies of God? We've already seen one of them in 1 Corinthians 15. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It is as if those who have the hope of the gospel taunt death now. What do you have against me? I'm with Jesus. You've seen how your, your attack, your attempts against Jesus resulted for you, O death? Where is your sting now? This proclamation of victory then is a taunt against your enemies as well. There are several places we could go to. Again, for the sake of time, I'll give you one other. John 12, verse 31. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. That the death and resurrection of Jesus is is a change, if you will, in, in the ordering of things. There's a really important one that we'll get to in a minute, but um, it's important to say that there was a Jewish myth in circulation at the time of Peter's writing where, where Enoch actually went to the spirits in prison and proclaimed God's condemnation to them. And if that is the background here for Peter, Peter is essentially grabbing that stock of idea and saying it wasn't Enoch. It was Jesus who, after his resurrection, then proclaimed God's pronouncement of judgment and victory against all the enemies of God. The, the, the people of Noah's generation, especially the spirits, the evil spirits in Noah's generation, were seen as the very worst, the most vile, the most opposed to God. So what Peter is saying then is that Jesus goes and proclaims victory against them. Even those who brought on the flood. Christ's victory over or against the demonic powers is a sub-theme in Scripture. Probably the place you can see this most clearly is Colossians 2.15. I want you to go there. Because all the elements are present. I'll start reading... Uh, Well, we'll just read verse 15 for the sake of time. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus, the rulers of this world, the enemy is called even the God of this world. Christ put them to open shame by triumphing over them. This more glorious and powerful existence then, this life in the Spirit, was not and is not just a placid existence of peace in the sweet by and by. But it results in the defeat and shame of all God's enemies. This reminds us, brothers and sisters, that our real enemy is not flesh and blood. There's there's a contrast. So there's the people of God and as Jesus names them, the son of the sons of the devil. And this is the, this is the theme throughout the whole Bible that's been playing. Those who follow God, those who follow Satan. And there's a link here, I think, with this idea of shame. Peter has also already exhorted us to continue to live good and honorable lives so that when we're reviled, those who revile our good behavior in Christ might be put to shame. So Jesus, when he was raised, went and put to open shame by his triumph all of God's enemies who were bound in prison. If I could use an example, it's almost like it. I apologize for those who aren't into sports, who uh, get bothered by sports illustrations, but it's as if Christ's resurrection was that walk off home run at the end of the game and he throws a monstrous bat flip right after hitting that home run and just walks around the bases, 
taunting the enemies of God. The victory was already secured. But he goes in his resurrected state of power and proclaims the victory of God to all of God's enemies. He flexes, if you will, showing that he has the authority, he has the power. Similar to what John records Jesus saying in the revelation to John, I am the first and the last. So this powerful, glorious triumph and vindication over evil is what makes this resurrected state more powerful. So I'm going to have to skip down. Uh, We would talk more about vindication, but just know that that is a major theme in Scripture, that God's vindication of His people, rendering the right judgment that those who trusted in God made the right decision versus the enemies of God is one of the main themes in Scripture. So then we have an interlude. I'll run through this quickly because I don't think this is the main point of the passage. He since he's talking about Noah and disobedient spirits during that time, he applies the experience of Noah to his current hearers. He says, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So Noah and his family then are a type of Christ and his people. Noah provides to Peter a helpful illustration of these same ideas and make these lines of connection He draws from this familiar story that that his audience would have known, especially in Asia Minor, and shows that these dynamics of just a few being saved versus all the enemies of God and vindicated because of what happens when judgment comes have been playing out for millennia. We're saved through water. You've got to keep that in your mind. So, So God is saving just a few through water, which... Water was the instrument of God's judgment. And so then he applies the story to his hearers. Baptism, which corresponds to this, meaning the flood, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. This passage does not teach what the Catholics believe in baptismal regeneration because Peter immediately qualifies his statement that baptism saves us by two clauses. But as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. I love this passage. It speaks to who are the proper recipients of baptism. Those who can make an appeal to God for a good conscience on the basis of the resurrection of Jesus. Those are the people who should be baptized. So it saves. Peter is making an illustration. That in the same way that the waters of the flood were the thing that God used to simultaneously drown those who were disobedient, but yet to lift up the ark above the floodwaters. It is the same action, it is the same divine activity that simultaneously curses the enemies of God and saves those who are waiting for Him. The waters of baptism then symbolize not just being buried in a generic sense, but being put through God's means of judgment and coming out safe on the other side. When God returns to judge, that same experience lands on everybody. And it is in that moment that those who trusted in God will be vindicated. Because God will render to each one according to His works. Christ then, this is the point, I think, of this analogy between Noah and the believers. Christ then is the greater Noah. His gospel is the ark. And He takes His family, His few, with Him through the waters of judgment through the waters of death, even as the Puritans used to speak about the the River Jordan as as that stormy body of water that we have to cross through to enter into the promised land. Jesus takes His few through judgment and preserves them alive unto the end. All made possible because He was raised from the dead. Then he resumes the main argument. The triumph of Christ continues on to vindication who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having subjected to him. 
He has indeed entered his power. All authority has been given to him. It is the case right now. The king of the universe is Jesus. And his rule, his reign, is more real than any government official that exists. It is more real to say you have a king than that you have a president. Because Jesus is king. He has been seated at the right hand of God. But the believer has a question. So Jesus has all authority, right? He's in control, right? Then why are things so out of control? Why is the world we see, to allude to the author of Hebrews, why is the world we see still not yet subjected to him? The point is this, that there is a pause, a pause before the final onset of the storm at the end. And this is the analogy that Christ has already been vindicated over all his enemies by being seated in power from heaven, everything being subjected to him. And we might ask, why wait? Why wait to put an end to all the enemies of God? And why not bring in shalom right now? Well, as I've said before, for God to do that, For God to put an end to all of his opponents in the way that maybe we long for and hope for when we see, especially when we see the arm of the unrighteous and the horn of the ungodly rising itself, raising itself against all that is godly. But for God to do that would mean nothing less than the end of the world and the unmaking of all things. The pause then is due to God's patience. In the same way that God's patience waited in the days of Noah, the rain is being held off. So the stage of the story that we're actually in isn't in the middle of the flood. It's right before the rain starts to fall. And the door of the ark is open yet still. And it is because God wants to fill that ark with all of his family. And he will save. God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That is the point. So we can apply then this drama of the triumph and vindication of Jesus to the people of God. Here's how it works. He's put to death, being put to death. So like Christ, we are called to suffer for righteousness sake for the purpose of bringing salvation. There's the similitude between our suffering and Christ's sufferings. He's made alive, being made alive. Like Christ, then, we will be vindicated by the powerful working of God's Spirit to bring us back to life, but an altogether new type of life marked by immortality, power, glory, and honor. He goes, or He goes to proclaim, going to proclaim. Like Christ, we proclaim His excellencies versus a world that is opposed to Him. We proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light with our focus being Christ's victory over Satan's sin and death in His life, death, burial, and resurrection. So like Christ going to proclaim His victory, we proclaim His victory. And then Christ goes into heaven, going into heaven. Like Christ then, we will one day ascend into heaven. We shall be raised. We shall be changed. And we will reign with Christ over all things as His chosen people and royal priesthood. His brothers and sisters brought safely through the judgment of the world and unto glory. Let's pray. Father, thank You for texts that summon us to have broader imaginations. And texts that show us in in amazing terms the glory of Christ's victory over all your enemies. I pray that we would bask in the glory of these things. May they be to us strong encouragements that no one, not even the most wicked of the spirits who have raised themselves against you will be able to 
hurt us because Christ has already proclaimed his victory against them. Please give us this hope that you, you are our hope in life and death. May we be faithful to summon others to enter the ark before you bring the floodwaters, this time with fire at the end of all things. We pray these things in Jesus' name.